any experience that we're having, our ancestors already had, right? Like a thousand times. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth, dropping the cultural lies that keep us disconnected and disempowered, and moving closer into kinship with the earth, the ancestors, and our deep selves, so that we can live lives of connection, healing, and empowerment. If you believe that story is medicine, magic is real, and healing is open-ended and endless, then you found your people. I'm herbalist Amber Magnolia Hill, and I'm here to remind you with every episode that earth wisdom and ancestral connection are your birthright, this knowledge is in your bones, and you came into your body carrying your own unique medicine. This is episode 46, and today I'm sharing my interview with Dr. Pavani Moray. Pavani is the host of the Bespoken Bones podcast, Ancestors at the Crossroads of Sex, Magic, and Science. So I'm hoping that that sentence makes you want to check out the podcast, because you should. Among the many things we talk about today are engaging trauma as an alternate state of consciousness in which deep healing can happen and potent gifts can come forth, transcestral healing and the blessings and the powerful magic of complex gender, how we're living in a sexually traumatic culture, coming back into sexual wholeness, and this really brilliant reframing for me that sexual liberation is not a state we permanently get to, some sort of future nirvana where we're free, but is a path and a process and a practice. So before we get into all that, a quick listener spotlight. This iTunes review is from Lauren G23. It's titled Rich and Vital Conversations. Medicine Stories is a must-listen for anyone who is walking the path of recovering their ancestral roots and learning to live with reverence for their lineage and in support of personal and collective healing. Every guest has shared insights that have deepened my own practice of ancestral remembrance and wholehearted living. This podcast is deep and potent medicine. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, everyone who leaves an iTunes review. They're wonderful. They're helpful. They feed my soul. Another way you can support the podcast is to subscribe, of course. Super easy. Wherever you're listening right now, just subscribe. And then every week when a new show comes out, boom, it's right there for you. Um, You can also take a screenshot on your phone while you're listening and share it in Instagram stories. I love looking at those and I try to repost them as often as I can without totally spamming my followers and um, whenever I see them, which is not always because I'm trying to spend less time on Instagram while at the same time doing more videos on Instagram because that's been really fun. I love IGTV. They've really made it so user-friendly. I love watching other people's videos. It's so fun when it's someone that you've followed and known through their still images and their words for so long, and then suddenly you're seeing their face and hearing their voice and watching the words come out of their mouth, (laughs) syncing the face and voice up. I really am loving it. So I just got to tell you real quick what I'm drinking right now, because what I'm drinking right now is lilac water. And I wanted to get this out there for anyone who has access to lilacs right now. We are so blessed to have four lilac trees on our property, including one right outside our front door. So during this glorious week or two every spring, we get to smell the incredible scent whenever we walk outside. And the other day on Instagram, I saw a post from Plant Makeup. So just check out Plant Makeup's feed. She does so much awesome stuff and great products. Um, But she had this post about making lilac water. And it's basically, it's so simple. It's like all herbal medicine. It's so simple. So don't overthink it. Um, Take a half gallon or if you only have a quart or a pint or whatever, do that. But with a half gallon jar, I picked three 
bundles of lilacs, um, just, you know, cut them off right at the stem, left the stem intact, put them in a jar, filled it all the way up to the top, put the lid on and put it in the fridge. And I did about 24 hours. You could do less. You could probably do a little more um, and then strain it out and drink the water. It's so insane how delicious it is. Like it just feels like it's fake. It feels like, you know, Jolly Ranchers or Starburst made it up or something. It's so heady and floral and like perfumey in the best way. Um, so yeah, if you got lilacs going on right now, go ahead and make yourself some lilac water every day between now and when those beautiful blossoms start to fade. Let me tell you about the Patreon offering that goes along with today's episode. Um, Pavani has provided a one-page PDF called the Erotic Experimentation Process. And so in this process, you just start with a question, something that you want to dive deeper into around your sexuality. And this question is, what are you curious about exploring in your sexuality? And then the rest of the document takes you through a process of exploration and tracking your results. So you can find that available at the $2 a month level at um, patreon.com slash medicine stories. Thank you so much, patrons. There's like 725 of you or something right now, which is unbelievably amazing and buys me the time to make the podcast happen. Basically completely covers our childcare for the month at this point, which is absolutely the only way I can do this podcast. Um, Especially now that, as I announced in the last episode, the deepest magic to know yourself, know your ancestors, I'm trying to move this from a twice a month podcast to a weekly podcast, which is crazy, I'm realizing, because I already feel so strapped for time. Time is so scarce as the mother of two children, one of them being a toddler. Um, But I just feel super determined to figure it out and to make it happen. And even though I'm telling you this, speaking it out loud, um, you know, I might miss some weeks in the beginning as we're kind of getting going. And it is reminding me of what I talked about in the very first episode ever of this podcast. Um called Ancestral and Embryonic. That's just 10 minutes of me talking and kind of introducing the podcast, which is this idea of creating apart from perfection. Something I read in an article in my early 20s that really, really stuck with me and has helped me ever since then to just keep putting things out into the world, even though they're not perfect and they're never going to be perfect. This podcast is never going to be those super clean and polished and spectacularly edited podcasts that I love so much. Um, It's just not, that's not me. I don't have that time. I don't even really want that. Um, But I do want to keep doing what I've been doing and what's been working so well for my beautiful, wonderful listeners. And I want to do it more often and it's not going to be perfect. And thank you so much for sticking with me through all of that. And I really hope that it's inspiring to others to create apart from perfection. Um, Okay, before we get into it, also, I want to remind you that there's still time to sign up for Dr. Daniel Four's Practical Animism online course. I interviewed Daniel two episodes ago now. Daniel has been a teacher of Pavani's. As we talk about a little bit at the end, I met Pavani doing an ancestral lineage healing intensive through the um, ancestral medicine framework, which was created by Daniel. And this Practical Animism online course is starting pretty soon, May 13th, I think, but you can sign up through sometime in mid-June. So you can check that out at ancestralmedicine.org or go back two episodes and listen to my interview with Daniel. And another quick teaser is that next week, yes, I am going to get another episode out next week. Um, The episode is going to be all about rose medicine and working with 
the soft and sweet and strong and sacred medicine of roses. So Dr. Pavani More is a somatic sex therapist in private practice in San Francisco. Pavani helps clients struggling with sex and intimacy to communicate more effectively, to feel more sensation and pleasure, and to have greater capacity for closeness within one year or less. As a queer trans witch, Pavani walks the glitter path of dancing bones, ridiculous delight, and old magic. Find out more at emancipating-sexuality.com. And without further ado, here is Dr. Pavani More. Hi, Pavani. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber. So good to be with you. I am happy to be with you as well. And I would like to start by asking you to um, lead an opening invocation, a prayer. I've heard you do this before, and I find it really potent. Well, ones and bright ones, all of the benevolent and kind and loving powers that support me and support Amber and support all of those who are listening to this, welcome. It's a gift to have the breath in these bodies today. It's a gift to to be your children and to be humbly in service to goodness. And so Amber and I are going to do this interview and ancestors, well and bright ones, we ask you for your blessing on this work. We ask that this be the right medicine for this moment in human history. We ask for the words to be easy. We ask for what comes through to be clear and useful for everyone involved and that the healing moves out in concentric circles so that many, many, many are touched by this and move forward on their personal paths of healing. Be close, sweet ones. Blessed be. Thank you. And uh, hearing your words, I'm wondering, are you someone who has always been comfortable offering prayers in public? (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm from Cleveland. (laughs) We do not pray out loud. We don't hug when we meet. This is like some California woo stuff. Um, no, it's it's vulnerable. It's definitely vulnerable to pray out loud. Um, the more I do it, the easier it gets. And the more I see the the need for it, like how putting things inside of a prayer container is really useful um, because then you can trust like you don't have that terrible backlash of, oh my God, did I say that? You know, why did I say that? That, you know, it's just like, oh, I put it in the prayer container. And so like what came through is what needed to come through. And so there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I find that soothing and and supportive. Yeah, I ask because it's something I would like to be working on myself. I always um, light some angelica root or juniper branches and do my own prayer before I get on a call. But I know that you do it at the beginning of the call for your podcast. And I've just been ever since hearing that on your show, been thinking, oh, could I get to that point? (laughs) I'd like to be that person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to ask you about the name of your podcast. How did you come up with this name, Bespoken Bones? What does it mean? Um. Yeah, my ancestors gave it to me, actually. Um, And bespoke, I didn't, you know how you learn a word and then you start seeing it everywhere? Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned the word bespoke a few years ago, like right before um, my podcast started. And I just thought it was the most amazing word. Um, And it's funny because it's bespoke, what it means is made to fit, like custom ordered, right? Um, And... It just it doesn't sound anything like the word, right? Like be spoke. It sounds right. like like be spoken, like say it out loud. Um, yeah, and so then when I was trying to figure out a name, I don't know. I, you probably have this experience too of um, that naming is a really magical process, and often um, things come through in dreams or in that kind of liminal space right when you're waking up. And um, so that's when it came through, bespoken bones, and it was kind of like a play on words of. Um, you know, made to fit bones and like bespoken bones, like, hey, ancestors, like I'm making a podcast so you can, you can have some airtime. Um, and I don't know, it was just, uh, it was playful and I can't really take the credit for it, um, but I do love it. 
I'm always a fan of alliteration. <laughs> and I, I found you through iTunes podcast suggesting you might like this one. And I was yeah, immediately drawn to the name and to your logo, actually. I, um, I want to ask about that, too. It's a raven and a rose. Is that right? A rose? Yeah. Yeah. Raven, a rose, and a bone. Yeah. And a bone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are those meaningful symbols um, for you? Yeah, I mean, those are symbols from my, well, the raven and the rose are symbols from um, my lineages, my maternal lineages. And um, the artwork was done uh, by uh, Derek Lizaponi, who's a lovely, talented graphic design artist and massage therapist and just all around general amazeballs human and um i i you know the deck the um the collective tarot have mm, you seen that deck no i don't think so mm, it's a beautiful tarot deck that was um designed many years ago by a collective um of four of four different artists each one took a suit and i really loved the bone suit and so we um which is earth uh pentacles and so we looked at images from that and i was like yeah i want something like that um for spoken bones and so derek designed it um and we did a trade for ancestral work, as I recall. Mm. Uh, so it was it was sweet. That's fun creating things, isn't it? Um, so you grew up in Cleveland, and I know you were a Montessori teacher for a time. And yes. I'm wondering how your life unfolded to a place where sexual liberation and wellness became the focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still a Montessori teacher. Oh, uh, you are. Well, you know, I feel like it's a calling, it's a vocation. And so it's like, once you're a Montessori teacher, you're kind of always a Montessori teacher. And so all of the teaching that I do, I do a lot of teaching and it's all informed Mm. by Montessori principles and of really meeting people exactly where they are. And um, this beautiful guiding principle of not knowing what someone needs to know, right? Like there's this like complete, um, you know, that whole expert paradigm, (laughs) drives me nuts um but there's that it's the absence of that of like oh i'm not an expert like you're the expert in you and i'm just here to support you and and to put my resources and um everything i have behind you and and support you on your path of liberation and so yeah i just feel like the montessori principles are are um so potent um in every every aspect of of my teaching um so how did it move from Montessori elementary teacher to sexuality professional. Um, I started to, I mean, I was exploring my own sexuality and I started to lead masturbation circles, um, which at the time was like so shocking, like, oh my gosh. And uh, and it still probably is to, to a lot of folks, but to me it was like, oh my God, I couldn't possibly masturbate in public and do that with other people. And, um, and then I was like just suddenly doing it. And it was very liberating. And so the, um, and I started to do more and more of that. And it just became clear that like, there was something there of, of how to um, practice communal liberation through eroticism. And um, as these things do, I, uh, my work shifted, I actually got fired from my job, I wrote a book, um, called Putting the Edge in Education, an anarchist cookbook for teachers. And it was really um, an exploration of of my own, of like, how do you become a radical educator? How do you really radicalize your teaching and um, put students first? And um, so, you know, that combined with authority issues um, didn't make me a particularly good employee. Um, and so I got fired. And and then it was like, okay, well, now what? And so I sat with that question and, um, yeah, sex just kept coming up of like, okay, do something with sexuality. And it was like, oh, like, that's not, that's not a thing that I get to do. I don't get to, I don't get to be that person. I remember being at a retreat and there was somebody who was doing sexuality work professionally, was leading workshops and stuff like that. And I was so mad at that. I was so mad at that person. I was like, ugh, ugh. you know, just kind of mm. seething and, and just so jealous like why do you get to do that and I don't and Mm. it just was a huge process of giving myself permission um and I had you know great great role models for that Captain Snowden was one of them um of folks who had done it before me and so that was helpful but yeah it was a lot of permission giving and yeah so that's kind of how it happens were you living in San Francisco already when this all 
unfolded. And I'm asking, of course, because it seems like the perfect place to explore. It's so much easier, you know, in a community that's sex positive to to be doing that. But you still have to come up against all of your own, all of your own internalized shame and and homophobia and all that stuff. But yeah, I was in San Francisco, um, which made it, I think, there was support right? There was the, the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, which is where I, some of my training, there's SVISI, San Francisco Sex Information, which is another place I did train. There's just like, and there's so much um, sex positive cultural stuff happening, right? Or at least there's less now, but there was at that time a lot. And and history, lineage of, of sex radicals, you know, Madison Young and Annie Sprinkle and um, Joseph Kramer and like all of the amazing sex radicals, Keith Hennessy, like all these people who are here doing this work and have been and, and rest on the work of, of their ancestors, right? So there was like, um, there was a space for it. Yeah, um, I'm curious too, what drew you to San Francisco in the first place? Uh, I was finishing my Montessori training and needed to do a um, practicum and, and came out here to do that. Um, and then life happens, but I would, I would, I mean, that's kind of the boring answer. I would say that like San Francisco, when I first moved here, someone said to me, oh yeah, San Francisco's, um, a place people come to bleed. And I love that. I was like, oh yeah, it's like, it's where you go when you're ready to be in your wounds, right? You're ready to like really explore what is that? I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm kind of done with the Midwestern or the, I was at that time in the South, like kind of done with that denial or covering it up or dismissing it. I'm ready to like just be in the muck. And, um, and so there's like the mundane answer of like what drew me, but then there's like the, I feel like the more spiritual answer, which is what's drawn people for so many years to this, this place, because it's so, it's so active. It's on an active fault line, right? Like it's, you're going to be confronted with your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's happened to many people and it happened to me and, yeah, so that's how I got here. Yeah, that's why I ask. It's a special place. It's um, it's so overwhelming for my nervous system to be in that city <laughs> every time. Oh, yeah. As I'm driving over the bridge, you know, I'm like, me. <laughs> but it's so fascinating too. It's it's such a special place. Um, so at what point then, in all of this, did the ancestors come to call, and what was the process for you of connecting sex and the ancestors? Yeah, it's a little bit of a longer dive. Are you do, up for that? Do it. Dive in. Okay. Um, so I was in the process. I was uh, in graduate school working on my PhD. Um, and thought I was going in one direction with my dissertation, hadn't started writing it, hadn't started my research, um, and was really interested in the development of sexual wellness, especially after trauma. And, um, you know, and in my practice, that's that's what I do. I work with folks who have sexual trauma and figure out how to come back into sexual wholeness, right, and, and sexual integrity and sovereignty. And, um, yeah, I... I was at um, Wolf Creek Radical Fairy Sanctuary, which is in Southern Oregon. And my partner and I were facilitating um, a sacred sexuality container, like a space for a week called a bower. Um, It was in the container of a larger uh, event that was happening. And so we were kind of the custodians of this bower space where there were like rituals and workshops and play parties. And, um, and we were going to attend this, this space. And, and Wolf Creek is really special because I mean, it's special for, for lots of reasons, but it was actually um, land that was purchased during the AIDS epidemic um, by the radical fairies who at that time were mostly gay men Um and so that land itself, it's, I don't know, 100 acres or so, um, really beautiful, beautiful land, has the ashes of hundreds of folks who died of AIDS. Um, and it has been a community land for, for you know, 30, 40 years. It has a long history. Um, and so we were going to be facilitating this on that land. And so we had this idea of like, um, I'm, I'm always interested in how how do we navigate harm to healing? Like, what is that pathway? Yeah, and um, 
just in the nature, it's a very sexualized space. And so just in the nature of sexualized spaces, right? Like sexual harm occurs, whether we intentionally want that or not. I mean, I don't think anybody ever wants that, but like it, it happens. And so my sense was that there were um, a number of spirits, ghosts, um, people who had died, who might be interested in doing a um, a project together, which would be to create this bower space and have them on the spirit realm kind of hold the perimeter as an act of um, atonement of like, okay, like maybe during my life I caused sexual harm and that kind of sucks, you know, being dead. Cause it's like, it hasn't been resolved yet. And I, and I want to resolve it. And, um, so we had this idea that like we would engage with the the spirits and of course we have no idea what the fuck we're doing, right? We're just like making this up as we go along. We have this idea that we'll engage with the spirits and that they'll hold the container. We'll hold the container. They'll hold the container and that that will be some, some kind of atonement for them. And we're going to do this in a really um, boundaried way. So that's what we do. And we had, you know, we had some support, um, but we really didn't know what we were doing. And it luckily worked. I would never do that now. Like knowing what I know now, like I would never work with unwell, the unwell dead and and ask them to help hold a container. But, you know, we were lucky um, and it worked out. Um, but then I came back from that and I was like, all right, so I know there have to be technologies out there. There, there have to be people who have, who have done this work already um, and know actually what they're doing. And instead of me re recreating the wheel, I could just study with them and learn from them. And so, um, yeah, that's how I started pursuing ancestor work and, and worked with Armand Volkes and um, a family constellation person, I forget her name, uh, and Daniel Four, and um, really started, and then, then kind of the, the work of my dissertation came into focus of like, oh yeah, it's the development of sexual wellness after trauma with ancestral reverence, like, um, because transgenerational trauma is real, right? Sexual trauma transmitted through generations. And so like, what is it to build these relationships with the ancestors, the well ancestors that can help um, support us as we work through our own sexual trauma and perhaps the sexual trauma of those who came before us. And this was like, it was showing up in my practice all the time. You know, people were having, um, they were being like, you know, yeah, I, I don't think I had any sexual trauma, but I know my mom did. And I feel like I kind of have it in me and it's impacting my relationships. And so it was like, I was curious about what, um, what were these, these ways of working that were safe and effective um, that could help, that could help support the development of sexual wellness. So that's kind of how I came into the ancestor stuff. Um, it was roundabout. It wasn't a direct route, but there you go. Mm, I love that story. I love that it is you're on the land with the bones in the form of ashes of these folks who had died decades ago. And that this was like the inspiration for you to move into this work in a way. That's really beautiful. Um, I'm hearing these words that you've used a couple of times, the unwell dead and then the bright ones and the well ones. Uh, what is the differentiation there and why is that important? Yeah. In the way that I work, it's super important. Like just like um, you discern in the living between like who you trust, who you just kind of innately don't trust, right? Your, your spidey senses are like, Oh, I don't know about that person. Um, it's because there's a degree, there's degrees of wellness, right? And by wellness, I don't mean um, I don't mean health. I don't mean healthy. I don't mean some empirical um, hierarchical structure that's imposed from without. It's like it's really like how kind are you? How loving are you? How um, how well do you self reflect? How well do you do your work? How well are you relationally? Right. That's what I mean. Not like, are you healthy? Like that. Does that make sense? That that mm -hmm, difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the people that you can trust because they're not going to stab you in the back because they're they're trustworthy because they're, um, yeah, I think kind is really the best word. And so, you know, we all know people that in varying degrees of wellness. I mean, some folks are, um, you know, actively dealing with their addictions and that's a certain, that's a certain level of wellness or unwellness. Um, and so 
just like with the living, it's like that with the dead too. Um, the kind of my worldview is that there is, you know, after you die, there's a process that your spirit goes through, um, that you don't just become a well ancestor, like just because you died, right. That like you might die and you're just dead. Like you just don't have a body anymore. And so there, that, that ancestralization process, um, happens or doesn't happen. And working, making the decision to work with the dead who are really well in spirit, who are, who aren't ghosts, who aren't malevolent, who aren't toxic, who aren't jerks, um, means that you, it's just like you're surrounded. It's like you're surrounding yourself with living humans who are going to be like nurturing and supporting and awesome. Like I want my dead community to be like that too. Right. And so that, and it's not a point of differentiation that all um, ancestral healing uh, methodologies make or um, all cultures make, but some do. Uh, and for me, it's been really important to be able to discern that because like there's, you know, just like that thing of, I don't know if this ever happens to you, Amber, but like, um, like obligation, like it's, it's Christmas and you're supposed to go home and be with your family, right? That, and that's like, everybody's like, Oh God, right. That sense of obligation. And so that can happen with the dead. Like, Oh God, they're my, they're my dead family. I have to be in relationship with them. But like, really it's not necessarily useful, um, unless there is a degree of, of, of wellness and of, of kindness that's present. Um, it's just detrimental and, and drags everybody down. So it's kind of like that. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Um, what is transcestral healing? Um, well, it's the name of my practice that, um, that I do most of my ancestor work in. So, you know, transcestors, like we have dead of blood, right? And then we have dead of heart or dead of lineage or dead of um, spiritual tradition, like the mighty dead or, um, you know, your teachers or those who have passed on who you maybe weren't related to by blood, but who are your ancestors? Like Maria Montessori is definitely one of my ancestors, right? Um, So, you know, we have this, this really intense gender binary um, that, everyone that's born gets categorized into and but that's not the experience of many people as they live their lives of like oh i fit fully in this one category or fully in this other category right of, of gender binary and um and it was and it's true of our ancestors too like any experience that we're having our ancestors already had right like a thousand times and so for me, widening the frame on welcoming in those um, ancestors who, during their lives, experienced the blessings of gender, of, of complex gender, um, welcoming in those who I know by name, like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and Leslie Feinberg, Lou Sullivan, you know, welcoming in those ones, as well as welcoming the ones in my own bloodlines who had complex experiences of gender, right? And so when I think about transcestors, that's who I'm thinking about um, is, and it's not language, it's just language I made up. They wouldn't have necessarily, right? They weren't, they wouldn't have necessarily used that language. Um, But I think it's also about like the, I, I think that the gender binary is a violence, um, and it's a and it's a false binary. And so, when I talk about transcestral healing, it's also about that about being able to um, have a more inclusive, yeah, just a more inclusive way of like being in our bodies, where we're not just being all one thing or all another thing. If like we get to be the entirety of our human experience, yeah, and that is going to be above and beyond any checkbox that we could tick on a form. Yeah. I can imagine it's very comforting for people to connect with these transcestors. Yeah. I mean, I think especially for folks who are dealing with their own gender complexity, it's like a relief, 
right? To be like, oh, right. Like, because it, it can be so alienating from biological family, not for everybody. And I think it's changing a lot, but many folks who are gender diverse, gender blessed, trans, uh, gender non-binary, gender queer, two-spirit, like all these, these words that we use, many of those folks have really um, challenged relationships with blood family because of, because of those blessings, right? Um, because of transphobia. And so being able to plug in to a lineage of um, like that, these things are actually blessings, right? That they're the, they are the liminal spaces. They are the ritualists. They are the magicians. They are the shapeshifters. Like these are, these are blessings, powerful, powerful blessings that have been, um, have been demonized, right? But like the reclamation of that, of those spaces of like, oh, this is a powerful magic that I that I have in my body and um, and that there's like others. And so like, it's just a relief, yeah, to like not be alone, to belong to something. Mm, I hear you use um, such positive language around it. And I uh, don't think you're being Pollyanna-ish at all, you know, by taking what, what trauma some folks have experienced and reframing it as a blessing. I can just imagine how powerful and healing that is for the people that you work with. And it reminds me of what I've heard you speak about, um, about trauma and engaging with that as sort of an altered state of consciousness and yes, tricky and scary, but also this really like rich territory to walk through um, and being aware of not, pathologizing your trauma, but um, using it as a gift. Can you speak about that? Sure. Yeah. It's a stage. Um, When someone is first coming into the awareness of the trauma that they have endured, that they've survived, right? It's not state, it's not, that's not step one, <laughs> right? I mean, step one is acknowledgement of like, oh shit, the deep impact that I've experienced through this. And and I think that like a lot of, for a lot of folks, for a lot of folks I see in my practice, for me personally, um, there's this um, dismissiveness around traumatic events like we all do this thing where we're like oh yeah like I've had some trauma but like at least it wasn't that bad it's like so and so right I hear this again and again from my clients and I'm like yeah but your capacity to feel your capacity to be in relationship is significantly impacted and so like I think there's a um it's a protective strategy to to minimize right it also has a cost it has a pretty huge cost so when we start to actually acknowledge the entirety of the impact and that that's a process right of of really coming to be able to to name that and to see that because it does become just the new normal of like this is just the way it is um you know then, then there's lots of stuff that has to happen around that like there has to be you know there's a period of of often of rage, of um, deep grief, of numbness, like all of these, um, all of these parts of the process, and it's not linear. Like they're you know kind of like happening on top of each other or in spirals. And once trauma is somewhat processed, and I and I think that there's layers and layers, and there's always there's always more to process, but like. Once it's processed in the psyche, and once it's processed somewhat in the body, right? Because we can do, we can definitely do the psyche processing without the somatic processing, which doesn't work. It's like you've been in therapy for years, and like you completely intellectualized your trauma, you understand it, you can talk about it, but yet it's still happening on a deep body level. Yeah. So once that has been processed for a while, both of those things, the body and the psyche, the psychological. There, yeah, there comes this, there can come this moment of starting to recognize the gifts of it, right? Like it's been a bag of shit and there are some, some gems in that bag of shit. Um, and often like for folks who are, for example, 
really sensitive, really empathic, can really attune to the energies in a room or can really read people. Like that's a skill set. And it's a skill set they developed because they were in a pretty bad situation, right? But yet on the flip side of it, like it's a skill set to be able to do that, right? And it's, and it's, um, it can be really supportive to be able to do that. So I'm not trying to bypass all of this stuff around it. And, and you can't just jump right to this phase of being, because that's just spiritual bypass, right? Or trauma by whatever mm-hmm. we call it. But it's just like, um, there is a place where you start to be like, oh yeah, like I, I have these gifts because of those experiences. And actually I like who I am right now. You know, I like who I am. And I feel like that's a really pivotal moment in healing um, when you start to, when you start to say that, because it's like the, the anger is less and the blame is less and the self blame is less. And it's just like, Oh, like I just see that that was, that was part of how I got to here. And would I choose that? No, but do I like who I am? Yeah. Okay. So now what do I do with that? One of my clients, um, categorized it as fuck you. Thank you, (laughs) which I really love. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and then there's definitely you asked about trauma as a liminal state, and and others have talked about this as well. Like it, it is um, the deep like psychedelic experience of uh, a somatic trigger, right? Of like, um, and I think lots of folks with sexual trauma, at least me and others who I've worked with, um, there's like a way that time gets really bendy or. Um, you know, when you're deeply in that and, and learning how to, to navigate in those altered states. I think that was your original question. Um, it's like, you know how, um, I'm sure you've had people on the show, on your show talking about a psychedelic experience. And like, sometimes when there's a facility, like a really skillful facilitator, um, and who's facilitating a group psychedelic experience, like that person is also imbibing the substance, right? Like they're also, um, but they are so skillful in navigating that space in themselves that they can they can do that and for others while they're also like they have to you know what I mean it's like they just enter the landscape with the people that they're facilitating um, and they they don't get lost they know the way because they've done it right and I feel like that's kind of um, the landscape of trauma of like oh like there are these these psychedelic states that we can go into. Um, and really harvest some amazing, some amazing stuff. Um, but it's dangerous. It's not without risk and don't try this at home kids. Right. It's like, yeah. I mean, those people who are leading those, 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 um, medicine journeys for people are like, they've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times like they, and they've had lots of training, right. They're not just like, woohoo, let's see, like, let's see what fun we can have with trauma today. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's what I got out of that. <laughs> Um, seems maybe like a silly question, but like, does anyone not have inherited transgenerational sexual trauma? Huh. I don't know. I mean, it's like, look, thinking about, um, women, especially our grandmothers, great grandmothers, you know, looking on all my lines, I'm like, damn, (laughs) our life sucked, you know, um, not all of them, of course. And they're, it's, it's complex, but it's hard for me to imagine that we don't all have some, and it can affect us in various ways and, um, intensities, but that we don't all have some sort of inherited sexual trauma just from patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I am of the opinion that we all have sexual trauma, no matter what your gender identity is, just because you're living in a sexually traumatic culture, right? Mm. Where the thing, like the very essence of our existence, like you are here because of sex, the essence of our existence is packaged and marketed back to you. And Mm. um, you're told like what you're supposed to be like, and you're told what you're supposed to know, and, and like nobody ever teaches you, right? you're just supposed to know all these, these things and, and how to be a sexual being and how to, how to do consent and how to know what somebody likes and, 
you know, like all these things that nobody teaches us, you're just supposed to know. And that's like, that's hella traumatic. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I, I don't presume to speak for everyone's ancestors. I don't, I don't think so um, that I can do that, but I think what you're saying is reasonable, you know? Um, and I think what's also interesting about transgenerational sexual trauma is that um, you can have symptoms even if nothing has happened to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's the same, not just sexual trauma, but um, transgenerational trauma in general. Like for folks whose, um, whose families went through, who endured starvation during World War II, who maybe were in the camps during World War II, um, like third generation survivors can experience symptoms that can have stuff around food, for example. Um, can have stuff around starvation because it's it's stored in the body, right? And if nobody has made those connections for you, if nobody's like connected those dots, like you just think like, oh, I just it's personal. It's much more personal. Like, oh, this is I just have issues. I just have food issues, right? Rather than like, oh, my grandma or my great grandma, you know, was in Auschwitz and and survived or didn't survive or you know, and and there, you know what I mean? There's like. I think the the framework of transgenerational trauma is um, also a relief, at least for me, uh, that it's not so personal. Like the things that I'm struggling with are probably the result of things that my recent few generations of of people struggled with. Yeah, that that just hits home for me so much. I remember in college, I was at UC Davis, early two thousands. There was. Some group set up um, this thing on the quad. It was, you know, big poster boards full of rape stories. And I remember walking around it and reading it, and I had like a total physical breakdown right there. Um, and I had not been raped. I had not had any sexual trauma at that point in my life. And I remember going home and being like, what just happened to me? <laughs> like, that wasn't about me at all and really feeling like that I had physically inherited this much larger burden of of sexual trauma from uh, at that point I wasn't framing it in terms of my ancestors I was thinking more like the collective conscience um, so it it just really makes sense to me that these are the waters we're all swimming in for sure and bless you for this work you're doing, you know, as I was preparing for this interview and reading more of your stuff, I realized just how many edges I have around sexuality, how much stuff still freaks me out that I really wish didn't freak me out. You know, I want to be liberated. <laughs> I want to be comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I just, liberation, is it okay to just speak to that for a second? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think that like, um, for a lot of folks, there's this, there's a binary of like, I'm either liberated or I'm not mm -hmm. right. And like, typically like I'm not. And so therefore I'm not. Um, and I, it's just not my sense of what it is. Like liberation is not the state that you get to and you're just there. Like liberation happens in moments. It happens in like a moment in bed or a moment in nature or a moment. Like you're like, Oh, I feel free. Right. And, and for me, sexual liberation, erotic liberation is about a set of practices that I'm doing. It's my commitment to those practices. I'm, I'm committing to that as my liberatory path, but I don't expect to like, I'm just going to get to this place and I'm just going to be all good. Mm. You know, I think that's a, um, if we put that on ourselves, it, it just, it's in service to that broken narrative, right? Mm. Like, oh, like I'm just, I somehow I just can't reach sexual liberation and stay there. So therefore I must just, I guess I'm just so broken, right? I'm just like, oh God, like that's so, such a boring narrative. Like, no. <laughs> oh, that's so helpful. Thank you. Uh, it's hard to talk about sex. Gosh, it's so like the waters are so muddied. Um. You <laughs> recently put a survey up out to your friends um, based on a, a talk you were going to give, I think, about bringing your whole self to your relationship. Mm -hmm. And over 60% of the people who responded to your survey said that they don't feel as if they can bring their whole selves to their relationship in a way that right. is authentic, vulnerable, and welcomed. 
What, yeah. what is going on here and how are you addressing this in your work? Yeah, I found that shocking. I found it absolutely shocking. You know, that's how I got, and that was the um, why I did that talk was because of that, I did that survey and then got that information. I was like, oh my God. Mm, that like, wasn't what you were expecting? Wow. No, no, I didn't expect that. And and it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Right? And, um, and as we got into that, you know, as I as I dove into that topic a little bit, um, there's a couple things that come up, like a lot of shame. Yeah. Um, because there's this, you know, it might be that you you bring your whole self to your relationship, and your partner's like, "Oh heck, no! Like that, I don't want that." Right? I re- reject. Go back. You know, <laughs> go back in the box. I don't want that part. Um, but a lot of times that decision is made before that part even gets brought to the partnership. Right. Um, somebody is so afraid that that part is going to be rejected that they don't even, they don't even give their chance, their partner a chance. And, and yeah, totally there are partners who can't accept parts of us. That's totally true. But the point is, is like, what's, what parts are we not accepting in ourselves and then projecting that onto our partner? Oh, they won't accept it. Right. And so then of course, like shame, like that's the reason why. Right. And, and if we look at shame, it's like, what's shame taking care of? Right. What is, um, so if I feel like I can't, so for example, let's get a little bit more concrete. If I feel like I can't bring the part of me that has violent sexual fantasies, I can't, can't talk about that. Can't bring that to my partnership. Um, I'm afraid my partner will judge me, will reject me. What's actually going on is I have a lot of shame about that part, right? The part that has violent fantasies about sex. And I'm not accepting that part of me. I'm rejecting that part, that that part, like, um, I don't understand that part. I don't have empathy for that part. Um, And so that's not always what's going on, but uh, my sense is that that's a lot of what's going on is what are the parts of you that you aren't accepting that aren't okay, that you just are like, Oh, that part isn't okay. It doesn't get to be here. Right. Um, and we can see it by through this metric of, of what do we choose not to bring? And not to say that you're going to bring that part to every relationship, right? Like you're not going to go to your boss and be like, Oh, guess what I was fantasizing about last night. Right. Like you're not going to do that. Like you discern, you're smart, you're wise, you know, what's appropriate. But, um, in our most intimate of, of relationships, our, our best friends, our partners, when there are things that we feel like, Oh, I can't, I couldn't ever tell that person this thing about me. I'm just really curious about why not, you know, what's up. And, um, and is that, am I taking care of myself in a particular way, you know, um, or am I, uh, dismissing a part of myself or, or disaccepting? I don't think that's a word, but, you know, dissing a part of myself, um, in that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And I, I think too, especially when it comes to sex, how many of that 60% are being held back by body shame. Oh, right. Yeah. There's that piece too. By just not being uncomfortable with, with the body they were given in this lifetime. Yeah. I was reading this thing the other day, um, by Richard Strozzi Heckler, who's one of my teachers. And he was saying, um, you don't just have one body, like you have so many bodies that you inhabit in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. I love that. But yeah, you're right. You're totally right. Like, uh, body shame and not feeling comfortable and, um, yeah. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was female identified, I um I asked my partner who was who is who is a who's a cis male at the time. I mean he's still a cis male, he's just not my partner anymore. But I was <laughs> like, Hey, do you ever um do you ever suck your stomach in? And he was like, Why would I do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> yeah, that hits close to home. <laughs> um I really, really like what you just said. Um, that that guy that you're speaking of, that that we have so many different bodies through our lifetimes. Right. Um, that feels really helpful to me. And yeah, I mean, I just zeroed in on the body shame thing because that's my biggest issue in sex right now, and it has everything to do with having my second child and still being like, "What is this new body? This isn't me." And of course, it is me. 
<laughs> and yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a new version of me. Um, so Dr. Moray, you recently got your PhD. Congratulations. Are you going to start using doctor when you introduce <laughs> oh yourself? God, the first day I got my diploma, I like changed everything on my website. Heck yes. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I don't know about when I introduced myself, but you know, I'm not going to be like, hello, call me Dr. Moray. But like, um, it's definitely on my website now. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to, I thought we could do sort of a retrospective a um looking back on what what you've learned since you began your podcast i think you have over 40 episodes now is that right uh, yeah yeah it's actually about where i am too um so has there emerged a a theme of learning or transformation like for you personally or put another way what have you learned from your guests, from doing the podcast, from the process of interviewing people that maybe you didn't anticipate at the beginning? First, I want to say that having the privilege of interviewing people and asking them whatever you personally want to know is tremendous that I get an hour of these people's time uninterrupted and I get to ask them anything I want. And I, and I often have the um, image of I'm sitting at your feet listening, right? Especially with um, some of the elders that I've interviewed. Like I just feel this sense of like, oh, this is a lineage transmission Mm -hmm. um, that I'm receiving. Um, And so there's a lot of, I feel really humble. Um, Sometimes in the interviews where um, I'm really trying to reach to understand like what the heck they're talking about. And it's like, it's this funny dual role of like being the, the interviewer. And at the same time, my head, like, it's like my head is blowing up a little bit, you know? <laughs> I do. Okay. Like, let me, let me try and get to where you are. And then I like be like, okay, this is what I think I hear you saying. Is that, am I getting it? You know? Um, and I, I love that. And it's also like, um, I mean, they're, they're pre-recorded, but I don't do a lot of editing. Right. So it's also like happening on the fly. Like I'm having to like learn, and expand my uh, understanding on the fly, you know, and, and it's going to be public. Um, I think it would be even more intensive if it was live, but I, I really don't edit that stuff out. Um, and so that's also humbling, right? And there's been moments where I like have stumbled or, um, you know, I say something that I'm like, oh God, that was a dick thing to say. Or like, God, that just really shows my like, my lack of awareness around like there was in one interview, like my lack of awareness around disability justice. And then like the shame spiral hits. And then I'm like Mm -hmm. still in the interview with like, that's all happening, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other thing that I want to say about it is the trust in the process of where it's going. Um, That, you know, I, I like you, I plan out some questions, but then the conversation kind of goes where the conversation goes and um, being available to, it's like a, it's like a dance. It's like a, a unplanned freeform dance where you're just following and leading and um, seeing what happens. It's improv. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's such a sense of trust uh, like trust the process. Yeah. I would say that those are kind of the big things that I've learned. Um, you, you really, I've been in ritual space with you for three days in a row back in, um, February at the ancestral lineage healing intensive through the work of Dr. Daniel Four in ancestral medicine. And I've listened to your podcast a lot and you really embody this very grounded wisdom um, your voice is incredibly soothing. Really, I mean, everything you say when you're interviewing people just always hits hits my heart. And I'm I'm just wondering now as we're having this conversation, like, what were you like that as a child? What thread <laughs> connects 
Pavani now and like child Pavani. So, so long ago in such a different space and different life. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no is the answer to your question. Yes, I was like that. And no, I was not like that. Like <laughs> the, the confidence um, comes from the work I've done in uh, somatic coaching um, with my somatic coach um, and the embodiment and the groundedness that all comes from, from that of, of five years of really intense somatic work. Um, the through line when I was, a um, when I was six, I started to draw this symbol, which was a star with a circle around it, uh, with a purple stone in the middle. Um, and I drew it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And then for my seventh birthday, um, my mom's partner had it made into a necklace for me, uh, which I have. And it has been a precious um, thing throughout my life. And, you know, obviously I grew up in the Midwest. I was grew up Methodist. We were not witchy at all. Um, and so, but like that, and I was probably like 18 or so when I realized what that symbol was, you know, um, and, and started to come into my witchiness and it was just like, Oh, that's weird. Right. Um, and I feel like that's been the touchstone of like, that's been the, the, the thing that I can hold in my hand and be like, you have always been magic. You have always been connected with spirit. Um, I mean, we all have, right? But like, I'm lucky that I have this thing that I can hold in my hand that reminds me of mm. that. That like, that, um, like all of the all of the hard stuff, like through all of the hard stuff, which was happening before that and after that, like, there is this through line of selfhood, um, and and I luckily have this thing that that reminds me of that. Yeah, mm, that's sweet. Okay, Pavani, tell the good people where they can find you and things you may have coming up. Sure. Um, I have a zillion websites. Um, <laughs> the, sex, the sex one is emancipating-sexuality.com. Um, you already talked about the transcestralhealing.com one. Uh, my podcast is Bespoken Bones. We mentioned that. Yeah. Um, I, I always have lots of stuff coming up. Um, I think just like, you know, I'm involved in like 10,000 projects. So just check it out. Um, check out my websites and there'll be information there about the stuff that I'm doing. And um, yeah, I, I guess I also just want to issue this invitation of like, be in touch. I, I, I feel like this stuff is stirring um, and it's, and it's good work. And I always welcome hearing from folks of like where they are in their journey or what their questions are, what they're up to, or um, like a lot of the guests in my podcast are because people are like, Hey, could you interview this person? I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, so just really wanting that. Um, I love that communication. So just inviting people into that. Okay. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Pavani. Oh, such a blessing, Amber. Thank you. Thanks for your show and thanks for your good work in the world. I respect the hell out of you. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more. More than I can list there. Mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, Which Healing Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. 
If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.